Today we are going to talk about Islam. What is Islam? Uh, is it a peaceful religion, as we keep hearing? Are there peaceful Muslims? Those kinds of things. Well, Islam is a very interesting religion. As a matter of fact, I think to study end times, I, I think we really need to look into the, the faith of Islam more and more. It is the fastest growing religion in the world today. As a matter of fact, it has more than doubled in the past 20 years. Back in 1982, in the world, there was an estimated 450 million Muslims. 2006, 1.3 billion. 2011, 2.2 billion. They are growing by leaps and bounds. There is a projected 8.3 billion Muslims in the world by the year 2030. At that kind of growth, they will take over the world. There are more Muslims in this world than there are Catholics and Jehovah Witnesses, even Mormons combined. Now, it has been rumored even that our president, uh, Obama, is a Muslim. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying this is one of the things that's out there. It's even been rumored that he is because of his sympathetic attitude towards that. The Quran says they have to pay a tax of 2.5%, and yet, interestingly, he pays uh, about that much to charity and things like that, where they're supposed to give to charity 2.5%. But anyway, again, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying it's been rumored that that is the case because of all these things that go on. And so we do know, though, that President Obama does have Muslims in his cabinet that work underneath him, that they are in our government for sure. Islam is simply an Arabic word that means to submit or to surrender, whereas a Muslim simply means one who submits or one who surrenders. So really, a Muslim is to Islam as a Christian is to Christianity. That's all it is. Now, where did it come from? Muhammad is the prophet, ultimately, that started Islam. Now, I don't believe he was a true prophet. In some places, I'd get my head cut off for saying that, but I I don't. He was born in 570 A.D. into a pagan and violent culture of Mecca. Now, Mecca is in Saudi Arabia today. You can see it there on the map. When Muhammad was about 40 years old, 610 A.D., he was basically meditating and thinking in a cave. Uh, An angel visited him. This angel began to give him information. Now, the angel's name, coincidentally, was Gabriel, the same angel that we see in our Bible who, you know, visited Mary and is mentioned other times in Scripture as well. But this angel, interestingly, is described as this, according to Quran. Surah 53:49. It says this, that this angel is as beautiful as a peacock with glittering jewels. It is a long description, but ultimately it describes how this angel was very beautiful and covered in, in all kinds of precious stones that made him look kind of like a peacock. Well, isn't that interesting that Ezekiel 28, verse 13, describes Satan this way, that he was adorned with precious stones in all his beauty, there are some very common connections between Satan and Allah, and Satan and this angel that appeared. Luke 10.18 says that Satan fell as lightning from the sky. We see the same thing in Revelation 9.1, that Satan is described as a fallen star. The Quran says Allah is the, the Lord of Star of Sirius. 
So even in the Quran, Allah is viewed as this star. Just like the scriptures say, even the word Allah has some connections to uh, the morning star in some places that uh, we see Satan being called the bright morning star in Scripture. Now, Jesus is too, but Satan likes to mimic Jesus, we see. Well, anyway, in 620, the Muslims claimed that Gabriel brought Muhammad to Jerusalem uh, during the night on this uh, heavenly horse. Then Jesus, Moses, and Abraham began to converse with Muhammad. And later on, then he was taken by a ladder kind of like Jacob's ladder in the Bible, you might think, to heaven for the night. And so if you go to Jerusalem or you see pictures of Jerusalem, you often see this Dome of the Rock. That Dome of the Rock, that gold dome, which was built in 691 A.D., was built where the place they believed that Muhammad ascended into heaven there. Supposedly ascended. This is exactly what Ezekiel tells us in chapter 28 that Satan wanted to do. Lucifer says, I will ascend to the throne of God. It seems that even what we see described with Allah, Muhammad, the angel, it's fitting the description of Satan in a lot of different ways. Satan can't help help himself. He wants to ascend to the throne of God. And there is no question that Satan is behind Islam. So if you would go into the Dome of the Rock, inside there you have this natural rock. That is where he supposedly ascended into heaven. Now, uh, this is an amazing place. Years ago, I was inside of it. Uh, you can't go in it anymore, but when you were inside, they have this hand-woven carpet that is replaced every year. Now, by the early 700s, there were several hundred families who were following Muhammad and believed that he was indeed a prophet. So they converted to this monotheistic religion of Islam. You see, Mecca was a polytheistic society. They believed in many gods. And so, as a result... Muhammad was not received very well at Mecca. And they were a minority. As a result, they began to be persecuted as more members came into Islam. And there was even an assassination attempt. They had planned to kill Muhammad. So he and his followers fled Mecca to go to Medina in 622. And when they went to Medina, it's about 250 miles directly north of where Mecca is. They were there eight years And in about 630 A.D., after they had a number of victorious battles where they were starting to fight, they had gained about 10,000 people in their following. So they were militarily becoming very strong. They decided to go back to Mecca and conquer Mecca. And that's exactly what they did. They went back to conquer it eight years later. One of the first things he did is he went to this main sanctuary at Mecca and he took it over and he destroyed all the idols that were there because, again, they were polytheistic and he dedicated this to Allah. And so this Kaaba stone is still there today in Mecca. Here's a picture you can see and the, the hundreds of thousands of Muslims that must be around there right now because as a result of being a Muslim, one of the requirements is this, that you have to at least once in your lifetime, if physically and financially able, go do a pilgrimage to Mecca. And while you are there, now that's according to the, the Quran in Surah 2, uh, 2 verses uh, 196, what you're supposed to do when you get there is you're supposed to circle this Kaaba seven different times. You're also supposed to go between these two hills seven times among other rituals that they do. But you can kind of see here they're circling this black stone monument there at Mecca. That's why when you see pictures of this, this is what you see. There's people because they're required to do this. Go around it seven times. can't imagine trying to go around that with all those people. Well, anyway, 
Muhammad eventually died. He died in the arms of one of his 11 wives, Aisha. Now, he was a pedophile, by the way. He married a six-year-old. In 632 is when he died. Now, today you can go to Medina and still see his tomb, which is interesting. You know, you can contrast that to Christianity. There is no tomb for Jesus. There is a tomb for Buddha. There is a tomb for, for Muhammad. Okay? All these guys have tombs, but Jesus does not, because that's what separates Christianity from all other religions. We have a living God. Now, there is a disagreement that rose about after Muhammad died. Who should take over for the religion? Well, there are two groups they began to argue. One were called the Sunni, and the other were called the Shiites. The Sunnis believed that the successor of Muhammad should be elected from uh, among his followers, close followers. And today, about 85-90% of the, the Muslims are the Sunni. Now, as far as the Shiites go, they're a smaller minority, about 10-13%, to 13%, but they believe that the successor to Muhammad should be bloodline, should be related to him. And so as a result, that's why we see the difference of the, the uh, Sunni and the Shiites today. Uh, there are other smaller sects. For example, we have this Wahhabi, which is what Osama bin Laden was a part of. And that began in the 1700s, where this guy named Abdul Wahhab be called for a return to pure Islam, what would be absolute pure Islam, going back to the ways of Muhammad ultimately. But again, that's a very small percentage of them. Now you may say, well, the Sunni are typically peaceful uh, you know, uh, Muslims, whereas the Shiites are the more violent ones and so on. So the minority is violent. I'm going to propose to you that it really doesn't matter. If you are a Muslim and you really are a Muslim, there is no such thing as a peaceful Muslim. The Nation of Islam movement today, you may have heard of a, a guy named uh, Louis Farrakhan. He's in the news from time to time because of being a, a leader of the Nation of Islam. Now, interesting thing, by the way, uh, he believes he was abducted by aliens. Uh, the Nation of Islam was started in about 1930 by Wallace Dodd Fard, and it was actually started in Detroit, Michigan. Most Muslims today do not like Louis Farrakhan because he's polytheistic, and Islam, by nature, is a, uh, a monotheistic religion. So there is even, you know, among different sects of Islam, battles that go on. But there is a common unifying theme, and that is this. The goal of Islam is that the whole world becomes Islam. And they have to become that way by a certain way, and that is this. Through struggle and war. Conquering. You see, after Muhammad died in 632... Islam spread to Central Asia, China, North Africa, to the shores of the Atlantic, uh, and southern France, and Spain, all in a hundred years. As a matter of fact, uh, today, historians are amazed at how much they were able to conquer in such a short period of time. This map shows you the spread of Islam in that first century between 622 and 750 A.D. Now, in 732, there was a guy named Charles Martel from the Frank tribe of Germany, and he led a battle of tours in France. Matter of fact, many scholars today believe that if it was not for the battle of tours, that we in America would be speaking Arabic to this day, because we would be a Muslim. Islam was forced upon tens of millions of people, forced upon them through military conquest, and that is what they call jihad. Now, jihad is really just struggle. It is an undeniable fact, though, throughout history and throughout what we observe going on today that Islam 
is a religion that is spread by the sword. And you may say, well, there are many peaceful ones and whatnot. Well, here's the interesting fact. We have these more radical sects and then the more peaceful sects. But when we, we see, oh, well, there's a democratic, we're trying to get democracy going on. And so that's a good thing. But when there are elections that, go, uh, that take place in these countries, even though the majority seem to be these more peaceful Islamic people, the elections always show the more radical people getting the votes. Why is that? I think Hamas got like 73 or something like that percent of the votes. When in fact, they're, they're the minority. Why is this? Because I don't believe there is such thing as a peaceful Muslim. That's like saying there's a Christian that doesn't believe in Christ. Now, are there Christians that don't believe in Christ? Yes, they probably are. But they're really truly not Christian. Are there Muslims that do not believe that they should have jihad? Well, maybe there are. But I can tell you this, I don't know why you would call yourself a Muslim, because as much as Christ is the foundation of Christianity, jihad is the foundation of Islam. The whole goal is to make the world Islam. And there cannot be peace and unity until that happens. And so that's the goal. As much as the goal of Jesus is for our Savior, jihad is for Islam. Now today, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Sudan, Pakistan, Yemen, and many others are Islam. And by threatening death or imprisonment, death for males, imprisonment typically for females, if you don't convert to Islam, that's how they grow, putting into practice what Muhammad said. If somebody discards his religion, for him Islam, kill him. Now, the Quran says that people who evangelize to Muslims are, quote, spreading mischief in the land. And they are to subject to execution or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides or exile from the land. That is their disgrace in this world and in a heavy punishment is theirs in the hereafter, Surah 533. So even to evangelize to a Muslim is a very dangerous thing. You can be killed. And we see that going on in other parts of the world today. Now, early teachings of Muhammad were called the Meccan surahs. Now, when they were in Mecca, those surahs, those chapters, what is a surah? It just simply means chapter. These chapters are, are a little bit more peaceful. And when they talk about killing people, it's more in self-defense. But then they went to Medina because at that time they were being persecuted. But when they come back from Medina to Mecca, at that point, things get a lot more violent in the Quran. And so, typically, most of Islam today believe those that the, the post-Medina surahs hold more value and weight and authority than those pre-Medina surahs. We read in Surah 2, Fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you, but begin not hostilities. He says, Allah loveth not aggressors. That was before they went to Medina. In Surah 29, he says, A dispute you not with the people of the book. Again, a pre-Medina. Don't, don't dispute with the people of the book. Who are the people of the book? Christians. People of the Bible. Later teachings will often even contradict those of the earlier teachings. You see, the Bible doesn't contradict, but yet the Quran is full of contradictions.
And the attitude towards any infidel, non-Islam, is, is much more violent. We read in Surah 9, So when the sacred months have passed away, then slay the idolaters. Wherever you find them, take them captives, besiege them, and lie in wait for them in every ambush. Then, if they repent and keep up prayer and pay the poor rate, leave their way free to them. So you're seeing it's a little bit more violent. Don't leave the people of the book alone anymore. Surah 8, make war on them until idolatry shall cease and God's religion shall reign supreme. Surah 9, fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, even if they are of the people of the book, until they pay the tax and they are in a state of subjection. See, before, leave them alone now. Kill them. Fight them. The Quran does justify killing especially Jews and Christians among the infidels. All infidels, but especially Jews and Christians. You can see here, 9-11, that was certainly a result of Islam. You can't even make fun of Muhammad in a newspaper without having riots and things like that, can you? And so what I want to do is show you some of the Islamic practices. What do they do? What do they believe? Well, to become a Muslim, you have to do one basic thing. You have to confess this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. You say that, you're a Muslim. That's your confession into the faith. Now, as I said, it's a monotheistic religion. Allah, there is only one God. Only one God, that is Allah. Allah, meaning the God in Arabic. It sounds like Yahweh of the Bible, doesn't it? Who is just, he is all-knowing, he is mighty, he is compassionate, merciful, sovereign, and loving. Because, see, Satan likes to imitate the God of the Bible, Yahweh. It sounds like Yahweh in that form, but... The Quran teaches Allah is also this, not triune. I, I have met so many Christians who think, well, I think Allah and God are the same. They just have different names. No, Allah is not triune according to the Quran. He does not have a triune nature. And most importantly, Allah does not have a son. And Allah does not love sinners. To say otherwise, in the Islamic faith, it's called the unforgivable sin, a shirk. So if you say that Allah has a son, that God has a son, that's an unforgivable sin. Surah 2 says Allah does not love any ungrateful sinner. Surah 3, surely Allah does not love the unbeliever. Surah 4, surely Allah does not love him who is proud. Surah 6, surely he does not love the extravagant. See, he is not a God who loves sinners. But yet the Bible says in John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love towards us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God loves sinners. He hates the sin, but He loves sinners. But Islam has absolutely no fatherly concept of God. Allah is a judge that is not involved personally with us. There's no relationship with Him. There's no fellowship with Him. Only service and submission. That's it. And that'll be important later. You see, in Ephesians 1.5, though, it says that God in love predestined us for adoption as sons. He is our Father. And He did this through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have in Matthew 6.9, Pray then like this, Our Father who art in heaven. God is our Father, and a Muslim has no concept of that. 
You see, Islam has 124,000 prophets that have been sent by God throughout the ages. And many of them are mentioned in the Bible a thousand years before Muhammad was even alive. They believe that David was a prophet, Elijah, Abraham, John the Baptist. They even believe Jesus was just a prophet, stripping him of his authority, his divinity, his deity. The Quran's last prophet was Muhammad. And therefore, his teachings, they say, supersede other prophets. Therefore, whatever Jesus says is not nearly as important as what Muhammad said. And Allah has given four books to man. They say the Law of Moses, the Psalms of David, the Gospel of Jesus, and the Quran. However, because since the Quran is the last, it holds more weight. So if there's a contradiction between the Quran and what Jesus said, or David, or Moses, the Quran wins. Muhammad wins. So the other thing they say is the Quran is pure, but the others have been corrupted. So that's why there would be contradictions. Because you really can't trust what Jesus said or what David or, or Moses said. Uh, first of all, I can give you plenty of evidence that the Bible has not been corrupted. Do you know that there are over 24,000 handwritten manuscripts that show the Bible has not been corrupted? And even if we would lose every one of those 24,000 manuscripts, the church fathers in the first three centuries quoted the Bible so much in their writings that you could reproduce 99.86% of the entire Bible just by looking at their writings alone. And what they quote matches up to what we have the Bible saying today, showing it hasn't been corrupted. The Dead Sea Scrolls showed that the Bible has not been corrupted. What they had in the days of Jesus is the same thing we have today. To say the Bible has been corrupted is to speak out of pure ignorance. A trip to the library can show you that that's not true. Regardless of whether or not you believe Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, you know, that he can forgive you of your sins, you can't deny that the Bible has been preserved accurately. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word is sure. You can count on it. The Quran says it's been corrupted. The Bible and history and everything else, literary analysis, shows it has not been. How about the Quran's teachings, though? Well, first of all, the Quran, it's a little bit shorter than the New Testament. And it has 114 chapters, which, as I said, are called surahs. Allah gave the Quran to Gabriel, who then dictated it to Muhammad over 23 years, from 610 to 632, when he died. So that's where it came from. But there are plenty of reasons to reject the Quran as being accurate and trustworthy. First of all, and most importantly, it contradicts the scripture, which has been proven to be accurate. It contradicts the scripture on many things, especially the teachings of grace. By grace you have been saved. They teach that it's by works. Surah 23 says, And those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls in hell. Will they abide? If you don't have enough good works, you will abide in hell. Big difference. Surah 18, As to those who believe and work righteous deeds, they have for their entertainment the gardens of paradise, 
Sarah 18, whoever hopeth for the meeting with his Lord, let him do righteous work. You've got to do good works if you're going to meet the Lord. Ephesians 2, though, shows you the, the Bible, the truthful aspect, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Or Romans 6, 23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Galatians 1, 8 says, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I talk about in my Do Aliens Exist DVD, you will see that You know, I don't think God was filling up space in the Bible here saying, you know, if an angel from heaven would preach another gospel to you, even though that's never going to happen. Yeah, it will happen. Jesus warned us that these kind of things would happen. That's where we got the Book of Mormon. That's how Mormonism started. The angel Moroni appears to Joseph Smith. This is how Islam got started. The angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad. Guys, these are... Angels, all right, but fallen angels. Muhammad was deceived. And if he'd have listened to Galatians 1.8, he wouldn't have been accursed. The second reason we should reject the Quran is this, that it contradicts science. Surah 18 speaks of a man who is Alexander the Great, who was traveling until he found where the place the sun descended into the earth. And it says, till when he reached the setting place of the sun, he found it setting in a muddy spring. It teaches that the sun sets in a muddy spring. It's where it goes. So scientifically, it's not accurate. Now, some people say, well, the Bible's not scientifically accurate either. Oh, yes, it is. If you don't think it is, then you need my DVDs that deal with creation. Dinosaurs, Ice Age and the pre-flood world, scientific evidences of a young earth, all kinds of things. But Surah 4 says this, And for claiming that they killed the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God, in fact, they never killed him. They never crucified him. And it goes on, they said that they never killed him because Allah basically just made it look like they killed him. This is a third reason why we should reject the Quran. It contradicts history. They say that Jesus never died on the cross. History. Again, I don't care. Maybe you don't accept Jesus is who he said he was, but you cannot deny and keep your brain cells functioning accurately, deny that Jesus Christ died on the cross. There was a man, according to history, many historians who didn't even believe who he was, say that there was a man named Jesus who died on the cross. You can't deny this. But yet, the Quran says that no, Jesus never died on the cross. So it contradicts history, which in a sense also contradicts the Bible. The New Testament is a collection of documents as well that were written down within the first generation after the events surrounding Jesus' life while the eyewitnesses were still alive. The Bible was written down by men who lived through these things, who saw that. It has been validated by over 25,000 archaeological sites showing the Bible to be true. You can get my DVD on archaeology just to see a tiny sampling of it. Even writings of the secular sources like the Jewish Talmud, the Roman historian Flavius Josephus, and many others, tell you that the New Testament is indeed accurate. The Quran is a book 
that was written down 600 years after the events surrounding Jesus' life. There was nobody, when this was written down, there was nobody there who even lived through the events of Muhammad. That's a big difference. Like I said, even the Jews accept the, the, the history uh, of the New Testament. Again, they deny that Jesus was the Messiah, but they say there was this guy who claimed to be the Messiah. His name was Yeshua. Fourth reason to reject the Quran as accurate would be internal inconsistencies, contradictions. Many of them. But, for example, uh, in Surah 28 and 17, it says Pharaoh drowned, yet it says he survived in Surah 10. Noah and his family survived the flood according to Surah 21, yet one of his sons dies in Surah 11 in the flood. Fifth reason not to support it is, well, there's no good reason to support it. <laughs> and if you've got no good reason to support it, that's a good reason not to support it. You know, the Muslims say that the proof of the Quran's inspiration, though, is because its literary beauty and eloquence is unsurpassed. Well, by that kind of reasoning, maybe we ought to say that Shakespeare is inspired by God. No, that, that's silly. Well, that leads us in, how should we witness to Muslims? Well, first of all, we are to love them. You know, the Bible says we are to love the enemy. Even if they want to cut your head off, we are to love them. Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about loving of our enemies. Second thing, we need to defend the trustworthiness of the Bible. We need to show Muslims that the Bible is historically, archaeologically true. You see, another thing is, is when you witness to them, men should not speak to women, because that goes against their culture as well. And likewise, women shouldn't speak to men. So respect that culture. You'll get a lot uh, further with them that way as well. We also need to be candid about the sins of Christians. One of the things that the Muslims remember are the Crusades. And we need to be candid about the sins of Christianity and let them know, listen, the Crusades were not a Christian thing. That was not something that was supported by the Bible. And so let them know, yes, Christians are sinners that have been redeemed by Jesus. We also need to give them a Bible because you know many of them have never read the Bible. And the power of God in the Word is incredible. Sixth thing is we need to stay away from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Stay away from politics. Okay, there are some deep-rooted things that you will probably never be able to understand with your worldview, and so just stay away from those issues. Instead, we need to stick with issues like the gospel of Jesus. Things like where will you spend an eternity if you die? Because you see, a Muslim can't be assured of his salvation. He's never sure if he's had enough good works. You know, that's why many of them will kill themselves, because uh, that's almost an assurance there, according to their teachings. How are you saved from sin? How do you get saved? Ask them those questions. Who is Jesus? And when they tell you who they think he is, you can show reasons why he's not. Can the Bible be trusted? Again, going back and showing that, yes, the Bible is accurate. And finally, and most importantly of all, emphasize grace with them. God's mercy and grace. Because like I said, Matthew 5.44 says, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We are to go in love, and in love show the love of Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. We are to teach with patience and love. Be gentle. 
And so keep those things in mind as you witness. But why grace? Why emphasize that? Interestingly, Fuller Theological Seminary surveyed 600 former Muslims. And the number one reason that they converted to Christianity was this, the love of God and the intimacy with their Heavenly Father. That was the number one reason. Because many Muslims will live in fear of their future salvation because they have no assurance of it, no peace of Christ. So emphasize that their sins have been wiped away when they put their faith and trust in Jesus and His work done on the cross. Remember, God's Word is powerful, and you must share that Word with them and let it do its work. But what I really want to show you here tonight is this. I believe that there is a good chance the Antichrist could come out of Islam. I'm not saying it for sure, but I think it is something to watch for because I can tell you this, that the Muslims also have a coming Messiah. We know our coming Messiah is Jesus. Their coming Messiah fits a perfect description of the Christian Antichrist. As a matter of fact, the Antichrist is going to be the head of a one-world government, according to the Bible. Yet, the Muslims have what is called the Mahdi, and he is to be the head of a one-world Islamic government when he comes. The Antichrist is to have a one-world religion. Islam is, this Mahdi is to set up Islam as the one-world religion. The Antichrist is going to set a seven-year treaty between the Jews and the Gentile world. The Mahdi is supposed to uphold a seven-year treaty between the Jews and the Gentile world. The Antichrist is to rule for seven years, as is the Mahdi. The Antichrist is described in the Bible, in Revelation, as coming on a white horse, as is the Mahdi. He's coming on a white horse. This is what Muslim Islam teaches. The Antichrist is to invade Israel and conquer Jerusalem. That is exactly what Islam teaches. The Antichrist is to rule from Jerusalem. That is where the Mahdi is supposed to rule from. The Antichrist is going to target and persecute Christians and Jews who do not convert to their way of thinking. And that is exactly what Islam teaches. The Antichrist is supposed to change the set laws and seasons and times. What is, is the Islam supposed to do? They're pushing Sharia law, changing the laws. And what does the Mahdi do? The Mahdi comes and sets up Sharia law for all. The Antichrist is assisted by a false prophet. The Mahdi is assisted by a false prophet called Isa. We know that the Antichrist is granted supernatural powers from Satan. Likewise, the Mahdi is granted supernatural powers from Allah to perform great signs and wonders. The Antichrist is to arrive on the scene during a period of great turmoil, during war and things like that. Likewise, the Mahdi arrives on the scene during a period of great turmoil caused by war, crime, natural disasters, and religious apostasy. These are just comparisons between the Antichrist and the Mahdi. They're the same. Our Messiah is the Muslim anti, uh, Antichrist. And our Antichrist is the Muslim Messiah. Islam says that when Jesus returns, he is going to this, quote, break the cross, kill swine, abolish jizya. Allah will perish all religions except Islam. So yeah, they believe Jesus is coming back, but to do what? 
Break the cross? Kill? Swine? Abolish? Jesus? These laws? No, the Antichrist and the body line up perfectly. Seven-year covenant, persecution, things like that. Look at this Kabbalah again, this black stone and all these people going around it. In Revelation 13, it's kind of interesting what it says here. It was allowed to give breath, speaking of this dragon. The dragon was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So we know that when Satan, in the end time, Satan is supposed to take this Antichrist and the false prophet, and they're going to give this image the ability to speak. Well, look at what we have here in Islamic tradition in regards to this black stone. It says, Allah will raise up the stone, a black stone, on the day of judgment, and it will have two eyes with which it will see and a tongue which it talks with. It will give witness in favor of everyone who touched it in truth. Many years ago, the black stone was whiter than milk. It was only later that it became black as it absorbed the sins of those who touched it. As they go and they touch this black stone, their sins are taken on this stone. That's why it's black. But this image is supposed to speak someday. Huh. That sounds awfully like, uh, an awful lot like Revelation 13. We even see in Revelation 9, speaking of Satan, it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven into the earth. And it was him who was given the key to the bottomless pit. Revelation 8 says, A third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third of the waters. Well, here's an interesting thing. That's describing Satan, yet Surah 24 describes Allah this way. Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. A likeness of his light is as a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp is in a glass, and the glass is, as it were, a brightly shining star. Allah is like a bright shining star. How about uh, Daniel 11? Daniel 11 speaks of the Antichrist and what he's supposed to do. And there's a number of things to be highlighted here. It says, Nor shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Literally, what it's saying here is not that he wouldn't desire women, like be a homosexual, but that he would not respect women. He has no desire for women. He has no respect for them at all. Islam has no respect for women. And it says, nor will he have regard for any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He's going to be proud and magnify himself. But in his estate shall he honor the god of forces. He's going to honor the god of war. The very foundation of Islam is based upon this. War. Jihad. They honor the god of war. And it goes on and it says that he is going to divide the land for gain. What is the goal of the PLO? What is the goal of Hamas to divide up the land, to wipe Jerusalem, Israel, off of the face of the earth? As a matter of fact, in Palestine, there's not a Palestinian map that shows Israel on it. Israel is not on their map. Yeah, you see, guys, 
Women have no rights in Islam. That's what the Antichrist is supposed to do. Okay, They're going to honor war just as the Antichrist does. They're going to divide up the land. And this is speaking of God's land here. That's what Islam does. They're going to magnify themselves. That's what they do. Allah even has many names in the Quran, one of which is all mudak kabir. And I'm sure I slaughtered that Arabic word, but it means the most proud one. Allah is even saying in the Quran, he's the most proud one. Who could this be if it isn't Satan? In Daniel 2.21, like I said, he said that he's going to change times and seasons. Going to remove kings and set up kings. That's the whole point of Sharia law, changing the laws, removing the constitution, setting up new kings, new leaders that will rule under Islam. Revelation 20 says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. You know, I used to look at that verse and think, beheadings, I mean, that seems a little ancient and archaic, doesn't it? It's kind of funny. Imam Muhammad Adam el Sheikh at this mosque in Falls Church, Virginia, told USA Today this, Beheadings are not mentioned in the Quran at all. <laughs> Yuvan Haddad, a professor at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown University, agreed with this statement, adding to it in the New York Newsday, there's absolutely nothing in Islam that justifies cutting off a person's head. We're hearing these kind of things. Oh, there's nothing that says that we'd behead people. That's ridiculous. Guys, those are all lies. Absolute lies. Nothing in the Quran. Look at this, Quran 5.33. The punishment of those who wage war against Allah. It says execution by beheading or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides or exile from the land. 8.12 says, smite ye above their necks, smite all their fingertips off. 47.4 says, strike off their heads. 9.1.23 says, murder those of the disbelievers. Let them find harshness in you. Oh, no, it's a peaceful religion. No, yes, there's plenty of it. Quran 2.1.91 says, kill them wherever you find them. 2193, fight them on until there is no more tumult and religion becomes that of Allah. And it goes on and on. Here you can see some other ones. It is not a peaceful religion. It, the very foundation of it says you must convert the world to Islam. And if they don't convert, you kill them. That's the point. That's the goal. Another thing, mountains. Mountains are often viewed as kingdoms in the Bible. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4 says, It shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, the mountain of the Lord is the kingdom of God, ultimately. Mountains are viewed as kingdoms. Ezekiel 34 says, My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth. God's saying, My people Israel have been scattered throughout many nations. Many hills. Daniel 2.35 we see that there's a Nebuchadnezzar statue and we have the head of gold and the body of silver and then bronze and, and all these different things that go on. 
iron and clay, and iron and clay mixed together. Daniel 2.35 says that there was a stone that struck the image, and it became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. There's this huge rock, and this rock comes, and it destroys all of these kingdoms. It's not like it just destroys the feet, but it destroys Babylon. Guys, Babylon's gone today. It destroys Greece and Rome. Well, guys, yeah, they're still here, but what it's saying is that this rock, then after it destroys this image, grows to be a huge kingdom. It destroys all other four kingdoms and grows to be one of its own, the kingdom of God. Well, if it's going to destroy those four, they all four must exist when the Lord comes back. Babylon, what is that today? Iraq. Okay, the the Medes and the Persians, the silver body. What was that? Today, that's Iran. Greece was the third one. Now, we know that Iraq and Iran are both Muslim today. Greece is quickly becoming that. And then there's Rome. And maybe it will soon become Muslim. I don't know. But it seems to be that there is a good possibility that the kingdom of God is going to destroy these other kingdoms, and these other kingdoms will be Islamic, perhaps. In Revelation 17, verses 9 through 10, it says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So we see that these seven heads are seven mountains or seven kingdoms on which the woman is seated. This prostitute. And he says they are also seven kings, seven kingdoms, seven kings. He says, five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. Well, as you can see here, could the five kingdoms of the past be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then the one that is, at the time that we see John writing this, was Rome, and then the one that yet has yet to come be perhaps an Islamic kingdom? I don't know possibility because we see every, virtually every kingdom that's mentioned in the Bible as waging war against Israel. In the Bible, the ones that are mentioned, every single one is Islamic today. Every one of them. It also says this in Revelation 17.10, speaking of this beast that was and is not and is an It says, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. So you've got these seven kingdoms, these seven kings, but it says the seven king is also an eighth king. It seems like the Antichrist coming out of that. And it goes to its destruction. So the seventh is again the eighth. Well, here's the problem then with that. If Rome is the sixth kingdom that was in existence when John was writing this, the one to come would also be Rome if Rome is the Antichrist. And then out of that Roman kingdom has to come another Roman king. So you'd have three Separate Roman kingdoms. Because the seventh and the eighth would fit with that as well. Are there three Roman kingdoms? I don't know. Maybe there is some way I'm not seeing. But it's very possible. And again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on any of this. I'm just saying it's one of these things to look out for. 
that it could be an Islamic empire. That you have the five that were, the one that is, Rome, and the one that is to come being an Islamic nation. And out of that Islamic nation would come the Mahdi, the Antichrist. Now, is there any support biblically and in the Quran that suggests that that could be the case? How about Revelation 13, verse 11, which says, Then I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. The dragon is going to give this beast power. But we see this beast coming up where? Out of the earth, and in in the context here too, you'll see it's in the wilderness. A beast out of the earth in the wilderness. Look at what Surah 27, verse 82 says. The prophet took me to a place in the desert near Makkah. It was a dry piece of land surrounded by sand. The prophet said, the beast will emerge from this place. It was a very small area. And when the word is fulfilled concerning them, we shall bring forth a beast of the earth to speak unto them, because mankind had not faith in our revelations." They're even telling us that they're looking for a beast that comes up out of the earth in the desert, but for good. Same thing the Bible's saying, except for the Bible saying this guy isn't good. This is right in the Quran. We see the first of the signs to appear, they say, in commentating on this, will be the rising of the sun from the west and the appearance of the beast before the people in the forenoon. In other words, they're saying one of the first signs of of everything coming together for end times is the rising of the sun in the west and this beast coming up from the earth. We see in uh, Surah 44, the beast of the earth will emerge and have with it the staff of Moses and the ring of Solomon. It will use these to mark off the believers from the disbelievers. Allah says, so be on the watch for a day when heaven shall bring a manifest smoke covering the people. This is a painful chastisement. So this beast that comes out of the earth is supposed to have a staff of Moses. And what's he going to do with it? He marks off believers from unbelievers. He gives them a mark which shows that they are Islam. And if you don't have it, you're not. And if you don't have it, there's smoke that comes up that causes pain. That's the Quran. What's the Bible say? Revelation 9. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And it goes on to say that they they caused excruciating pain for five months. It sounds to me like the Bible is describing what they're waiting for, but what they're waiting for is going to punish them, not the believers in Jesus Christ. Revelation 17, 15 through 18, we see it says, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute, that woman, is seated, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. In other words, there's a woman on this beast, but it's also on waters. And the waters are many nations, many languages. Islam is becoming many nations. It isn't just one kingdom anymore. It says the ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute, the woman. And the woman, the prostitute, that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. 
In other words, you have a great city, a woman, that's sitting on a beast in the desert among many nations. Revelation 17, 3 and 4 goes on. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Matthew 24, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. Matthew 24, speaking of end times and the Antichrist coming, and he says, when he comes, he's coming in the wilderness. And if they say, look, there he is, don't go. It sounds to me like there is going to be a beast that's coming up out of the earth in the wilderness, and people are going to flock to him. And it's very possible that it could be an Islamic one. The woman, the city, resides in the desert region. You know what's interesting to me? Every single Islamic country today, it's devastated. You even go to Israel today, as soon as you cross the border into Palestinian country, you see the difference. You know, the Bible says in Revelation, a third of the earth would be scorched. Muslims scorch the earth everywhere they go. And about a third of the earth is Muslim today. And they have, it's just a desert wasteland. Every place they live, it is a wilderness area. The kings of the earth will commit adultery to get her wine in exchange for betraying God's people. It says in Revelation, this intoxicating wine, they get drunk on the intoxication of her wine. What is this wine? Again, I don't know for sure. It's just a possibility. But some have proposed that this wine is oil. And I'll explain that in a moment. But what false religion teaches that Christians and Jews should die? Only one, Islam. What false religion is centered in desert regions geographically? Islam. Uh, Even Kedar mentioned in end time stuff in, in Ezekiel 27 seems to be Mecca today. Well, as far as the wine being oil, in end times prophecy, Isaiah says in chapter 34, verses 8 through 10, For the Lord is a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams, the Hebrew word there is nahal, of Edom, shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. It speaks of this area being burned and the streams burning and all of this. Well, that word nahal, here it is in Hebrew. The third definition of it is a mine shaft. A man-made depression made in the earth to remove ore. Some have said that these streams then that are on fire would be oil coming from basically, you know, uh, a man-made depression or a mine, an oil well, perhaps. Again, I don't know for sure on that. It's just a suggestion that maybe that is the case. In Jeremiah 51, it says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine. We know that Babylon is probably not the real Babylon, but symbolic. And wine probably isn't really wine, but it's probably something. What is, it seem like every nation drunk on? Oil. Revelation 18.9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail when they see the smoke of her burning. All the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea, and they're going to just see the smoke of her burning. 
Could it be like the, the oil wells of Kuwait as everything begins to burn? I, again, I don't know, but it's something to watch out for. Micah 5. Micah 5 seems to be speaking of end times. And it says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Speaking of Jesus. And they said that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them, Israel, give them up unto the time when she who is in labor has given birth. In Revelation, we see this woman giving birth, and this woman seems to be Israel. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. You see, many Jews have rejected the Messiah. But he says that when, at this time, in the end, many of the brothers are going to come back. The Jews are going to recognize the Messiah as Jesus. And it goes on in verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd his flock, and they shall dwell secure, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes... Now, this Assyrian seems to be this almost like an Antichrist figure here. When the Assyrian comes, could it be Muslim? Into our land. By the way, Assyria is a Muslim nation today. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palace, then we will raise against him seven shepherds. Could those seven shepherds be the same seven mountains spoke of in Revelation? And raise against them, or it says, raise against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men. There's that seven and eight thing. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. How does Islam rule? With the sword. And the land of Nimrod, which is Babylon, Muslim today, at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, Israel. So the Assyrian, this Islamic place today, is supposed to come into the land of Israel. What do the Jews, or what, do they, what does Islam want to do? They want to conquer Israel and tread within their borders. Psalm 83 speaks of end times, and it says this, Do to them as you did to Midian. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Zeba and Zalmunna, these were the Midianite kings that came in when Gideon was uh, ruling. And they were going to take over God's land. And here in End Time Prophecies, it's saying, Do to them, the enemy, as you did to Zeba and Zalmunna. Well, what did Gideon do to them? Let's go to Judges, where we see that historical event taking place. We read in chapter 8, verse 21, Gideon arose and he killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. The crescent ornaments, that Hebrew word you can see right there, it says is a crescent shape in the stage of the moon. In other words, the kings of Midian that were coming into, into taking over the land of Israel, their camels had crescent moons on them. What is the symbol of Islam today? The crescent moon. Isaiah 14 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning star? The Hebrew word there, sahar, also the, a word given to Allah that has that crescent aspect in it. So, is Islam a peaceful religion? No. It may not be politically correct to say that, 
but it's honest. They are ordered to kill anyone who doesn't say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. You see, there are different stages of jihad. And one of the first stages is educational jihad, that you need to educate and take over the universities and get people teaching. And you know what? In our universities today, there are more pro-Islamic professors than not, it seems. They're supposed to get the financial jihad, the gold and silver, a lot of money to advance the cause of Islam. And then there's going to be legally, you know, changing the laws, Sharia law. Well, the Oslo Peace Accord, we've heard about that a lot. It's not a peace treaty. It was a ceasefire is what it was. But what we see in, in the Quran is that you can make a peace treaty, a hudna, with, with people for two reasons. To destroy them or to make concession. But ultimately, to give by time to destroy them. And like I said, this is why in elections, it's the radical Muslims that keep winning democratic elections. Okay, But you'll often hear the critics say, oh, come on, show me a, show me a, a verse in the, in the Quran that shows me you know, the, about violence, speaks of violence. And then I'll show you how it's used in self-defense. Well, yeah, you, they can pick those out. Most people don't know the Quran, so they, they feel safe saying that because you're not going to point it out to them. But you can find plenty of them, more often than not, that are speaking after they conquered Mecca, and there's plenty of violence there. If they say this, this is a question you should ask a Muslim. Do you consider Muhammad the best authority to interpret the Quran? If a Muslim denies the authority of the Hadith, he is denying Muhammad's authority as a prophet kind of got him trapped. Because it says, O you who believe, obey Allah and obey his messenger and those in authority among you. If you fall into dispute about a matter, refer it back to Allah and his messenger. If you believe in Allah in the last day. If they deny this, then they're denying Allah. If they deny it, they only do so in front of you. Because in their quiet of their own home, they will, not deny, they will not deny that Muhammad is the final word. And they are at home in their hearts going to uh, believe that they are a violent religion, even though they'll lie to you. You see, it goes in stages. And what the Quran says is they are able to lie to you until they get strong enough to defeat you. And once they are strong enough, then attack. That's the strategy of the Quran. The Sunnah is as important to a Muslim as the New Testament is to a Christian. And the Sunnah is everything besides the Quran that came from God's messenger. It explains and provides detail for the laws that are found in the Quran. And they have one goal, that is to advance the glory of Allah as the supreme God until there is not anyone left who will deny it. And so Quran 5 says this, you are cursed if you accept Christ, according to the Muslims and demons. In blasphemy, indeed, are those that say that God is Christ, the Son of Mary. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Mary, that he is Christ, you 
are cursed. That's what the Quran says. Their view of Christ is very skewed. So if you want to say Allah is just another name for God, you've got issues. It says in 1988, they said, The most gracious has begotten a son. You have uttered a gross blasphemy. The heavens are about to shatter. The earth is about to tear asunder. The mountains are about to crumble because they claim that the most gracious has begotten a son. It's not befitting that the most gracious, that he should beget a son. Yeah, you can't say God has, you know, Jesus is the son of God. Quran 9.30, the Christians call Christ the son of Allah. That is a saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. Allah's curse be on them. How they are deluded away from the truth. That's what they think of you and your Christ. Another interesting thing, Allah is also called in the Quran, Surah 354, the greatest of deceivers. Isn't that interesting? What is Satan called? The deceiver. He is called that in reference to a story of the crucifixion where Allah deceived the people by not allowing Jesus to die and resurrecting him instead. And they often have a common prayer in Islam that says, O best of schemers, scheme for us. They see the word deceive as a good thing. It's a weapon. It's a weapon to use against the Jews and Christendom. That's all it is. And so... Oh, you know, scheme of, best of schemers, scheme for me. Help me to be a schemer. Help me to be a deceiver. Help me to be a liar so that we can bring Islam into this world. If they say it's a peaceful religion, they're either lying or it's like a Christian who says that they're a Christian and doesn't believe in Christ. One of the imams said this, knowing this, that lying is not sin by itself. Unless it brings harm to you, it could be ugly. However, you can lie if that will keep you from evil or if it will result in prosperity. If it helps Islam, lying is a good thing. Lying is not a sin. We see this guy here who was the first Muslim to deliver prayers in our U.S. House of Representatives. But yet when he's with his own people, here's what he said to a Muslim audience. Muslims should take over the U.S. and replace its constitutional government with a caliphate. If we were united and strong, we'd elect our own emir, a leader, and give allegiance to him. Take my word, if six to eight million Muslims unite in America, the country will come to us. That's not scary, is it? Yeah, it is not a peaceful religion. Muslim apologists will often point to Surah 2 as proof that Islam teaches only defensive violence, defensive warfare. But that is not true at all. There are so many parts of the Quran that speak outside of Surah 2 that are, you know, post-Medina, that are filled with saying that if they fight you, slay them. They point to Surah 8 as Muslims being persecuted in Mecca again, and that it was just self-defense. But it's much more than that. The passage that they quote oftentimes is dealing with making and breaking of treaties with pagans. And if it's to their advantage to do so, they will make a treaty, as I said. But the one that's in reference to this Quranic passage that they quote is in reference to a treaty that lasted four months that was later interpreted by later Islamic scholars 
as nullifying other treaties between Muslims and infidels. Essentially, what it was saying is this. There is no treaty that can be made that is binding. That is called hudna. So the Oslo Accord is not binding to a Muslim. Surah 9.5, when the forbidden months are past, in context of what I've just explained, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them. This is not peaceful. This context is dealing with the waging of offensive war against unbelievers. Even though the little portion they say seems to be defensive, the context shows it is offensive. It says in Surah 929, fight those who believe not in Allah. And it goes on and it says, the people of the book, until they pay the the tax with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Fight them. Fight the people of the book. In commentating on Surah 929, one of the Islamic leaders, this is an Islamic scholar, states this, Allah revealed that the order to discard all obligations, covenants, treaties, and commanded the Muslims to fight against all the pagans as well as against the people of the scriptures, Jews and Christians. If they do not embrace Islam till they pay the tax, and it goes on to say they feel themselves subdued as it is revealed in this verse. So even their own Muslim scholars commentating on these verses that they are saying are dealing with self-defense, are telling you that it is not self-defense at all. It is dealing with a treaty that's not binding, and you are to be offensive with it. He goes on to commentate saying, so they, the Muslims, were not permitted to abandon the fighting against them, meaning the pagans, the Jews, and the Christians, and to reconcile with them and to suspend hostilities against them for an unlimited period while they are strong and have the ability to fight against them. So at first the fighting was forbidden, then it was permitted, and after that it was made obligatory. You catch that? At first it was forbidden, then permitted, but now it's obligatory. It's obligatory. You have to fight if you're a Muslim. Thus the teaching is that Muslims are to fight when they have sufficient strength to win. And that this fight is obligatory. When Muslims are not strong enough to fight their enemies, they are to lie low until such a time as they can fight. This is why I say there's no peaceful Muslim. You see, you're supposed to lie low. You're supposed to lie and say we're peaceful. Yeah, we've got a peace treaty with you. We don't want to hurt you. But you wait until maybe this country is attacked in some way. I believe they're going to be coming out of every corner to rise up with Islam exactly like the Quran tells them to do. Yeah, you're to fight, but it's, it's, it's an obligation now. But you have to wait till you're strong enough to make sure you win. Here's an interesting thing. As long as Muslim population is around or under 2% in any given country, they're going to be considered to be you know, peace-loving minority for the most part, not a threat to other citizens. Now, This is a little bit old. This is probably about 10 years old. These are taken from the the CIA fact book of populations, uh, uh, the statistics, the numbers. And what what do we have for nations that have less than 2%? The United States, Australia, Canada, China, Italy, and Norway. And some of these, like Italy, I think, are probably at 2% now. And what are the, for the most part, 
in the United States, they're considered as peace-loving. They're not a threat. They're just, you know, ordinary citizens. But when you get to 2 to 5%, they begin to proselytize from other ethnic minorities. And it says disaffected groups, often with major recruiting from jails and street gangs. We're already seeing that in this country. But those that have 2 to 5% are Denmark, Germany, uh, the United Kingdom, Spain, and Thailand. And that's exactly what we see happening there. From 5% on, they exercise an inordinate influence in proportion to their percentage of the population. They get a lot done with a few people. For example, they will push for the introduction of halal, which is the, the clean Islamic standards of food, thereby securing food preparation jobs for Muslims. They will increase pressure on supermarkets to offer halal foods, threaten uh, if you, you fail to comply to these kinds of things. What kind of countries have that percentage? France, the Philippines, Sweden, Switzerland, Netherlands, Trinidad. And guess what? That's exactly what's going on in those countries. At this point, they're going to get the ruling government to allow them to rule themselves within their ghettos under their Sharia laws in their own areas so that they can practice Islamic law. Okay, again, the ultimate goal there. And when Muslims approach 10% of the population, they tend to increase lawlessness as a means of complaint about their conditions. In Paris, we are already seeing car burnings and non-Muslim actions offend Islam, and they result in all kinds of, of uprisings and riots and things like that going on. We saw that at Amsterdam. Uh, we see that in the, the pictures of Muhammad in the newspapers, things like that that cause these tensions to come about. Places like India, Israel, Kenya, Russia all have 10 to 15% Islam population. And after they reach 20%, the nations can expect trigger rioting, jihad, militia formations, things like that going on. Where do we see that? Places like Ethiopia. Uh, after 40%, widespread massacres, chronic terror attacks, as we see in Bosnia, Chad, and Lebanon with that percentage. And from 60%, they're going to have unfettered persecution of non-believers of all other religions and a tax that is placed on the infidel, like we see going on in Albania, Malaysia, Qatar, Sudan. And after 80%, it's daily intimidation and violent jihad. And that's what we see going on in all these countries listed here that are over 80%. What is expected at that percentage is exactly what goes on in the nations that have that. You get 100%, well, that's supposed to be peace. That's when the Mahdi is going to come. And he's going to make Islam the one world religion. Today, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and Yemen are pretty much 100% Muslim, Islamic nations. Do Muslims build mosques? on lands they claim victory on. Uh, it seems to be that way. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 16, after prophesying of Israel's rebirth as a nation, it says, In the days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land. Okay, Gog is going to come against the land of Israel, so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God says, I'm going to bring them against the land. They're coming. And when they conquer, they're going to build a mosque. Now, the Bible didn't say that, but the Quran does. You see, the Quran says, build a building over them. Their Lord knows best about them. And those who prevailed in their affair said, we will surely make a mosque over them. 
Now, this is not a direct commandment to build on a place of victory, but there is a Muslim tradition, it seems, throughout society of building mosques to celebrate or symbolize their victory. The Dome of the Rock, it's a mosque built over Israeli land, right? Built over the Jewish temple. We see the principal mosque in Istanbul was built over St. Sophia's Basilica. We see the one in Spain was built over the Christian cathedral. And when the Twin Towers fell, they wanted to build one, build one over there too, didn't they? Yeah, they weren't allowed to. I want you to look at this video and watch just to see the Muslim population and how it's growing. to maintain itself for more than 25 years. There must be a fertility rate of 2.11 children per family. With anything less, the culture will decline. Historically, no culture has ever reversed a 1.9 fertility rate. A rate of 1.3, impossible to reverse. Because it would take 80 to 100 years to correct itself. And there is no economic model that can sustain a culture during that time. In other words, if two sets of parents each have one child, there are half as many children as parents. If those children have one child, then there are one-fourth as many grandchildren as grandparents. If only a million babies are born in 2006, it's hard to have two million adults enter the workforce in 2026. As the population shrinks, so does the culture. As of 2007, the fertility rate in France was 1.8, England 1.6, Greece 1.3, Germany 1.3, Italy 1.2, Spain 1.1. Across the entire European Union of 31 countries, the fertility is a mere 1.38. Historical research tells us these numbers are impossible to reverse. In a matter of years, Europe as we know it will cease to exist. Yet the population of Europe is not declining. Why? Immigration. Islamic immigration. Of all population growth in Europe since 1990, 90% has been Islamic immigration. France, 1.8 children per family. Muslims, 8.1. In southern France, traditionally one of the most populated church regions in the world, there are now more mosques than churches. 30% of children ages 20 and younger are Islamic. 
In the larger cities such as Nice, Marseille, and Paris, that number has grown to 45 percent. By 2027, one in five Frenchmen will be Muslim. In just 39 years, France will be an Islamic Republic. In the last 30 years, the Muslim population of Great Britain rose from 82,000 to 2.5 million, a 30-fold increase. There are over 1,000 mosques, many of them former churches. In the Netherlands, 50% of all newborns are Muslim, and in only 15 years, half of the population of the Netherlands will be Muslim. In Russia, there are over 23 million Muslims. That's one out of five Russians. 40% of the entire Russian army will be Islamic in just a few short years. Currently in Belgium, 25% of the population and 50% of all newborns are Muslim. The government of Belgium has stated one-third of all European children will be born to Muslim families by 2025, just 17 years away. The German government, the first to talk about this publicly, recently released a statement saying, the fall in the German population can no longer be stopped. Its downward spiral is no longer reversible. It will be a Muslim state by the year 2050. Gaddafi of Libya said, There are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50 plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. There are currently 52 million Muslims in Europe. The German government said that number is expected to double in the next 20 years to 104 million. Closer to home, the numbers tell a similar story. Right now, 
Canada's fertility rate is 1.6, nearly a full point below what is required to sustain a culture. And Islam is now the fastest growing religion. Between 2001 and 2006, Canada's population increased by 1.6 million, 1.2 of those immigration. In the United States, the current fertility rate of American citizens is 1.6. With the influx of the Latino nations, the rate increases to 2.11, the bare minimum required to sustain a culture. In 1970, there were 100,000 Muslims in America. Today, there are over 9 million. The world is changing. It's time to wake up. Three years ago, a meeting of 24 Islamic organizations was held in Chicago. The transcripts of that meeting showed in detail their plans to evangelize America through journalism, politics, education, and more. They said, we must prepare ourselves for the reality that in 30 years, there will be 50 million Muslims living in America. The world that we live in is not the world in which our children and grandchildren will live. The Catholic Church recently reported that Islam has just surpassed their membership numbers. Some studies show that at Islam's current rate of growth, in five to seven years, it will be the dominant religion of the world. As believers, we call upon you to join the effort to share the gospel message with the changing world. This is a call to action. Getting close to the end here, I want to talk about the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast, is there any connection with that in Islam? Well, one thing is, if it is Islam, it gives you some kind of comfort that the mark of the beast isn't going to be something that you can accidentally take. You know, like, oh, I didn't know that you know, they were implanting me with that chip and, and that was the mark of the beast. It, I don't think it's going to be that. Revelation 13 says this, He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark. Now, that's like an engraving, an imprint. On their right hand, in the strongs, that can be their right side, forehead. It, it can be a lot of different things there. So it doesn't necessarily just mean right on the hand. But it says, goes on to say that you can't buy or sell unless you have this mark of the beast on you. Now, it stands to reason that if Islam is a mark in some way, that unless you're Islam, you won't be able to buy or sell food, will you? No. Revelation 13.7 says that they had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. In other words, the mark doesn't have to be just this plain old 666. It says, or the name of the beast. It's almost like it's not a number, but it can also just be a name, a description. In Revelation 19, it says he was clothed, speaking of Jesus, with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. It's a declaration. Jesus isn't just a name. He is the Word of God. Matthew 1.23, he says, he shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It's not just Emmanuel with no meaning. It's a declaration that God is with us, that God is the Word. It's a title. It's a declaration of our faith in Messiah. 
Revelation 19:16. On his robe and on his thighs, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. God has many names. Why? Because he has many descriptions. He has many titles. He has many declarations of faith. Isaiah 14, 14, we see that Satan has many declarations, many names. He says, I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 9, 6, and the Word was God, and He is also called Mighty God. God is. Okay, Revelation 13, we can see the name of blasphemy being described. I think there's a good possibility that the mark could be more of a declaration than a number. Now, here's the interesting thing that we see in Islamic writings. It says, Allah will save a man from my nation above all creation on Judgment Day. In front of him will be laid 99 registers for his sins. Every register is as long as the eye can see. Then he is asked, Do you deny any of these? Then he says, No, O Lord. A badge is brought forth, scrolled across it are the words, No God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And then he is asked to bring forth his deeds. He asks, O Lord, what is this badge that is with these registers? And he is told, you will receive no condemnation. The deeds are put on one hand, the badge in the other. Then the registers will float and the badge will outweigh the registers. In other words, what it's saying is this. There's this guy before judgment day and in order to be judged so that the the badge that they receive keeps the, the deeds in check so that you're okay. And it says that this badge is brought forth, and what's on the badge, scrolled on it, is the words, No God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Well, there is an Islamic creed, that's what it is, that says, Allah is the one true God, and Muhammad is his final messenger. Is it possible that this creed, this declaration of faith, could be a mark of the beast, and unless you say that, you won't get to buy or sell, and that you would wear it on your forehead or your hands? They call this Bismillah, and it says there is no God but Allah. It even has, in some decorative way, some people have made 666 out of that. But I don't know. The fact is that you can see many pictures of Muslims wearing this phrase, no God but Allah, on their foreheads. This declaration So it is possible that 666 could be the mark of the beast. Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but nonetheless, it is possible. Now, again, what is our job as Christians? I don't mean to be freaking you out here. That's not my goal. My goal is to say this. This is what Islam teaches. Don't believe the lie that they're peaceful We have a job to do, and that is we need to go out and witness about Jesus Christ. I don't suspect we're going to change, you know, stop Islam because of it. But I do suspect that we will bring people out of Islam that will know Jesus because we will tell them the truth of Jesus Christ, His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. You see, yeah, I want the whole world to become Christian just like Islam wants the whole world to become Islamic. But the difference is this, we do it in love preaching the gospel, not by the sword. That's the big difference. And that is Islam. So, pray for these people. Study up and don't buy into the lie. Because I think you will get duped if you do. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and His Word and share that Word with them. Thank you.